This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. And we are back up. Episode 31. Do you remember being 31 age-wise? That was, that was four years ago. Okay. I mean, I was like right before me and you and Jack started talking. Are you at the age 30s yet where it doesn't matter age anymore 30s. how old you are? You know, in the, into the 30th yeah, range. I got that way about 24. You forget what age you are. Yeah, I have to ask my wife. I'm there. I was there in like 34. That's about when I started that. And I was like, how old am I again? I could never remember. You were probably there around 1982. (laughs) It seems to come and go. If I'm not in a drop down age, and by that, what I mean is, you know, when you drop down and you have to pick your age and it's always like 35 to 40, 40, 40 to 45, 55, you know, whatever. I'm not in a drop down age right now. I'm 46. So... It, I'm, I'm in another yeah, you round up. full year. Yeah. You're, well, yeah, and you round up, you do math. You're 50. You got one foot in the grave, brother. Yeah. I am. I, I don't feel 50. I act 13 and I feel 58. Today was weird. I was sitting and you here. You look and I was 36. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sitting here typing and all of a sudden I realized that I have like a very, a very physical percussive heartbeat in my left ear. It's like, doop, 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 doop. but I can feel yeah, I think it. It's an early sign of a stroke. Do you smell cucumbers? No, toast. I smelled burnt toast. Burnt toast. Um, I did. I looked it up, and and yeah, th- it's not good. I mean, there's a handful of things it could be, and most of them are like, you need to lose weight. You need to get serious about living. So I actually think that the smelling of cucumbers is a sign that you're around a copperhead. So I don't know how I got this two things. <laughs> <laughs> Both can kill you. I thought maybe the smell of cucumbers was you were too close to a hipster. I guess that could kill you too, though. So buyer beware, as they say. They do say that. I've heard that. <clears throat> Everybody's been saying that. The correlation with hipsters and the smell of cucumbers. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about buyer beware and how everybody's saying it because of of who we elected to be president. <laughs> hey, uh, have you ever been big into collecting? Do you collect things? I, yeah. What do you collect? Yeah. When I was a kid, I had a collection of hollyhock plants that I grew from seeds into like mm-hmm. 11 Of course foot. you did. Yeah. Yep. Collecting hearts and minds. Another collection I like to pride myself on. You want to elaborate on what the fuck a hollyhock plant is? Yeah, it's a very large, very tall uh, plant. It's very sturdy, um, hard to grow, but once you get them going, you kind of can't stop them. And right. like, imagine if uh, if a sunflower, you know, the giant sunflowers, the big giant ones that you see like growing on the side of the road. Imagine one of those, but not as beautiful at all. And much larger and kind of like if Tim Burton invented the sunflower, that's what a, a hollyhock looks like. How, how many did you have? Eight. I had eight. Yeah, and I don't even know if that counts as a collection. Well, for as much time as I... My mom has pictures of me out on the back porch in my underwear pouring water into these little pe- the little potted plants, getting them going. And 
and it's adorable, and it took me years. Did you ever collect anything more uh, interesting? Yeah. I had a G.I. Joe collection, and I would spend my time either playing with my G.I. Joes, converting G.I. Joes, buying, like tearing apart other things and turning my G.I. Joes into like motorizing a G.I. Joe that shouldn't be motorized, like a vehicle, or calling um, Fox. For fuck's sake, Op. Did you ever, ca- did you ever collect coins? Uh, no. No, I did not. So, I really enjoy coins. But I've never. I, so I we've been doing TCK for thirty. Long. This is thirty-one episodes, and you've always rode my ass about coins and coin facts. And yeah, uh, this coin, this is the coin with Pocahontas's pussy on it, and like you know, whatever. <laughs> you, yeah. you don't. It's worth you know fifty-six dollars, and mm-hmm. can only be found in. Arkansas, you don't, yeah. you never collected coins. No, no, actually, no. I, I, I just really enjoy the facts. I also know a lot of facts about like the Bugatti Varen, but those don't seem to be triggered as much uh, in our episodes, you know. So, yep. So, kind of crazy how that goes. I wrote this entire episode around thinking that you collected coins at some point. Uh, 1,184 brake horsepower. For three, yeah. for three fucking weeks. Baron I've been riding this. Sport. Seven speed dual clutch. <laughs> See, I mean, it's just, they don't, those don't come <laughs> up. Like, it's not like, hey, oh yeah, yeah. you were just talking about this. and Yeah, neither did the coins. Too. None of the coin facts. Well, it kind of did. In any of always... the other episodes. That didn't. No, I would be like, Ed Gein, you know, wore his mom's nipples on a belt. And you'd be like, by the way, there was a coin with John Elway and Jose Canseco on it that is worth $44. Yeah. And I don't know why why you got, like, little Asian <laughs> there right at the end of my impression. He's a worth of $44. $44. Yeah, I don't know why you gave me that accent, but but uh, it just seems like your the 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 research you do seems to trigger kind of a nostalgic feeling in my heart and mind face, and and that triggers nostalgia coin facts. I mean, if you were if you were like nostalgia moral- from what? If you didn't collect them though, how are they, how is it nostalgic? Well, I have a lot of nostalgic thoughts in my head, like in my fun facts to know and share corner of my brain. There's a lot of drawers, a lot of drawers and cabinets full of stuff. Like if you said, hey, op, some like in that movie d- Dreamcatcher. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of spaces, lots of creepy corners to not go into, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you said World War 16, I'd be like, hey, the Bugatti Varen has. Uh, you know, a W sixteen powered engine. It's basically a V sixteen. That's what I would tell you. But it never. All right. Well, anyways, came up. Nope. Neither yeah. did the coin stuff until now. When it, I'll try to bring more Bugatti Varen facts up in this episode. How about that? Well, this is this a good one to do that in? Yeah. Please do not. Try, try. Um. No. Well, I collected when I was growing up. I tried to collect pogs, and then those weren't cool. 
Then I go, I've always been into collecting things, pogs. Uh, I collected Goosebumps books. I don't know if you remember were those. Were you a middle child? R.L. Stein. Were, were you a middle child? No, I was, a, I was the oldest. Oh, because every middle child I know collected pogs. Yeah, they were cool when I was little. And I thought, this is the big thing. This, this collection of thousands of what it really is, is little round pieces of cardboard with, with pictures on them. Mm-hmm. This is going to be worth a lot of money. I'm going to put my kids through college, and I'm going to buy a, a flying space car when I'm when I'm 35 years old with these pogs. Is that working out? Is that working out for you? No, it turns out they're not worth anything. Mm. They're not worth. You can have 50 million pogs and sell them, and what you sell them for, it'll cost more to ship them. It's hard to know, though, right? I mean, you've got who knew that Beanie Babies would be worth something, or that you know there would be a market that ebbs and flows on Beanie Babies, or the you know lazy chimp would be worth you know as much as it is as an NFT. You just can't really know until you invest a lot of money in them. I'm hoping that red cracked wheat really you know blows up someday because I've got a lot, a lot of red cracked wheat around red cracked wheat yeah it's a kind of a food storage surplus type of item hoping i hoping i can offload some of it someday to some hungry people because also i don't have a grinder and i forgot that you need that with red cracked wheat yeah so i do collect that you're one of many people i know that's trying to get on on that red cracked wheat money yeah yeah trying to get it on that train it's, it's like a gravy train. Everybody's talking about Lizzo and and Chris Rock smacking Will Smith, or mm. I mean Will Smith cracking smacking Chris Rock, and and red and NFTs and mm-hmm. red cracked wheat. Yeah, that's what everybody. There are a lot about. of people trying to get on Grinder, uh, but I'm just looking for a hand grinder, just a normal old fashioned one. I also collected Goosebumps books, mm. which is like the are- Stephen King for. For people in that uh, getting molested age, yeah, you know, which was twenty one. They were they were just scary, scary. Yeah, I was twenty one when I was collecting them. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say you were twenty one and you were getting molested because that's probably the third time, the median age. Oh. <laughs> uh, and those Canada. ended up not being worth anything. And then I got on the Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa. You remember when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa were battling out with the home run for the home runs, and I believe it was '97. Yeah, that was that was really impressive. I heard a lot about it, but I don't follow soccer. Well, I was uh, so. I was an original St. Louis Cardinals fan. I'd been following the Cardinals since Ozzie Smith, the Wizard, was over there doing backflips as a shortstop. And uh, so when Mark McGuire. Got signed to the Cardinals and then started slamming balls out of the park. I got on that, started collecting everything, Mark McGuire, everything under the sun, magazines and figures and cards and everything. And I was just like, you know, 11 year old Kent thought this is the big, this is gonna, this is gonna, this is what I'm gonna use whenever I'm an adult to buy one of them flying cars Hmm. in the, in 2022 when we've got flying cars and teleportation. Yeah. That's, this is what, and then, uh, the very next year, Barry Bonds broke Mark McGuire's record. And on top of that, all of them tested positive for steroids, and none of it was worth anything. So I'm proud to say that combined, all of the collections that I ever collected in my whole life 
probably worth about $13.88 today if I still had them. I, uh, in the last minute of you talking, the only, the only words I registered with were slamming balls. The rest of, I don't know what else you said about. It was baseball stuff. Oh. Doesn't even matter, Op. Okay. Doesn't even matter. Because yeah. today we're talking about coins. I got something special for y'all. This is a special episode. The nickname of our bad guy on this episode is the coin shop killer. And his entire life seemed to revolve around coins. S- similar to what you, how you thought my life revolved around coins before. Yeah, I, I thought it did. And now it seems like the three weeks worth of research and writing is pointless. So I'm glad we had this talk. Glad that you could ruin the episode before we even get started. And I, and I appreciate you for that. It's something only you can do. I will, I, you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to drop one, one really cool thing on you. Did you know that, you, you know, you said that your whole collection was worth about $13. Did you know that there's actually a $13 coin? I, I, did, I didn't. I no. didn't either until I looked into cryptocurrency and there, there's a $13 crypto coin you can get. So. Well, that's fun. Yeah. Did you hear that? That was my throat. Gurgled. Mm-hmm. So, coin shop killer, huh? That'll be fun. See, $13 coin. I, I was, because most coins are. Isn't it weird to think that most coins are odd numbers instead of even? I'm trying to carry this conversation right now. I I just wanted to see how long you could carry. <laughs> <laughs> Not long, apparently. Have you listened to my show lately? Not long. <laughs> before we get into this episode up, I want to give a shout out on this one to some people. I've never done this before, but... I want to do this because aside from the Ed Kemper episode, this was easily the most labor-intensive episode to research because there was so little information out there about this case. There's no books. There's not really any documentaries. The entirety of this episode was basically pieced together by old newspaper articles, some dating all the way back to the 40s. Now, I myself, I personally have about 50 hours total in this case in research alone. That's not counting the writing. That being said... This one took a team. It took a team to write, and right now I'd like to thank a few people. Amber Wallen, Tracy Cash, Leanna Lair, Hyatt Homestead, Brandy Hildebrand, Lisa Mann, Samantha Liesenmeyer, Amy Jordan-Massa, Casey Giles-Ramirez, Sharon McKellar, Rebecca Franklin, Sarah Davis, and Chastity Hope Spencer. Like I said, this one took a team to write. That's, I think, 14 people that were helping me write this one, 14 researchers, and I'm very proud of uh, of this episode as well as them. That's um, that's really because, cool. Yes. It's really cool that they would help you out like that. I oh man, I hesitate to tell you this. I don't want to. I don't want to make you feel bad. Um, but as you were reading those names, many of those names jumped out at me. So you so you you reached out to the socials, right? And you said, "Hey, anybody anybody got anything? Any any?" tools or resources to help me research some stuff and all and these people stepped up and and did and did it right that's what you're saying 
Yeah, because my, well, my normal means of research just weren't giving me enough information. So I needed people that had access to some higher, and I'm not going to go into how, but we got a lot of information that wasn't available to just normal public. And, uh, and I'm very proud of what we were able to come up with because there was a lot to this one, even more probably, even more so than the Ed Kemper episode. So that's really, but that cool. being said, yeah, I, d- I just don't want to make you feel bad. I, um, I found out yesterday that many of these names were on the, on a similar list. Um, m- many of these people, with with a handful of others, they actually uh, put together enough money for me to uh, pay my rental car fiasco. Did they really? <laughs> they sure did. And I I'm very humbled by that. And so many of those names I want to thank personally as well. And I guess to you, Kent. I guess I guess the lesson here is when you when you ask for something, you know you. They'll they'll come they'll come and help you when you don't ask for the help you get even more from our our we loving. have the best listeners of any podcast ever and I will ever. die on that hill I will die on that hill too uh, the difference between you dying on that hill and me dying on the hill is you'll have a handful of research I'll have a pocket full of cash so yeah and a giant fucking sunflower. <laughs> it's a it's a hollyhock, or whatever it's you call it. But we both we both come a off Polly Pocket. Conqueror. Is that what you said? Holly Hollyhock, Polly Pockets. That was collectible, though. I remember those. Tamagotchis. Now on but, with the show. Yeah. Today we're talking about the coin shop killer. Name was Charles Sinclair, Charles T. Sinclair, and he was born up on November twenty fourth, nineteen forty six. In Eunice, Texas, contrary to popular belief, a lot of people thought that he was born in New Mexico, born in Eunice, Texas, and he was the youngest of four children. He had two sisters and a brother. Like you, you got like 53 sisters, don't you? Twelve brothers. I have two brothers and three sisters. There's six kids altogether, and we all vie for our parents' attention. Uh, Our upbringing was basically a giant talent show to win their affection you guys had like a basket how many brothers and sisters well there's six of us all together so i had five siblings you had a basketball team plus one bencher yep but we didn't have horses so we couldn't play they play basketball on horses where you're at you You know know what doesn't even matter 1953 when he is seven years old up his dad cecil so his father his name was cecil he moves the family to a small oil and gas town called Jow, New Mexico. And that place is located in Lee County. And he moves them there from Texas, from Eunice, Texas. So they're, they're at seven years old. He's moved to Jow, New Mexico. And this is where he'll stay um, up, up until he starts his shenanigans. He was hired as a, so Cecil, Charles's dad, he's hired as the chief operator there in Jow, New Mexico at El Paso Natural Gas Company, plant number three. Like I said, they're in Jow. So it says oil and gas town there in Jow, New Mexico. His dad is working there at El Paso Natural Gas Plant. And and for a little while, Charles will follow in his father's footsteps when he becomes an adult. But on Tuesday, January 29th, 1957, just four years after moving there to Jow, 
when Charles is 10 years old, his dad, Cecil Leslie Sinclair, suddenly fucks off by dying unexpectedly of a heart attack at the ripe old age of 51. Jowl means water. Okay. His mother, Thelma Dora Sinclair, supported them. So she took over his... (laughs) So she took over after Charles... After... (laughs) So after, after Cecil dies... Uh, Charles's mother, Thelma Doris Sinclair, she starts supporting her family there uh, with one of those like coin-powered laundry machine businesses. You know what I'm talking about? The ones where it costs like $43 in quarters to wash your bed sheets and you always have to worry about getting shanked by an ex-convict while you're in there. So, you know, you know, those places I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I've never felt as alone and near people at the same time as when I'm in a laundromat. Like I, I went to, I had to use one in Denver, Colorado, Car in danger. all the time. Yeah, just it's the weirdest feeling. Like, like not even on a subway have I felt as like alone, exposed in public as a laundromat. I wonder if everybody feels that way there. And maybe they're not as bad in like big cities because they're no, more they are. common to be used. Mm-hmm. No, I they guess are. are they? No, they're they're just, it's just not a thing here in in like country towns. Mm-hmm. Like the coin operated laundromats in country towns, you will get robbed there. Do you guys have coin operated car washes? Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. That's a perfect place to get some gravel in your paint job. Exactly. Well, you have to have them in country towns because you you can't go mudding. And then show up to a car wash. Car wash. They will they'll turn you away. So the only way to get it done is by hand. Putting five dollars and eighty six cents into a machine, getting thirty sec thirty seconds of a hand sprayer time before it starts beeping at you again, and you're more soaked than on your first date. And like I said, this this little Charles here, this little shithead, he's going to grow into be the coin shop killer. So being around this little coin operated laundromat business that his mom is running, this is his first forte into into tender. So he's, so, you know, he's not into, he's not around at, at this coin shop business. He's not around 1943 Liberty Head V nickels at this place, but he oh. is dabbling in like run of the mill free range coins already. I just had a feeling that I haven't felt since. Yeah, your penis moved a little bit, didn't it? Just a little bit. <laughs> Going through. Just like not full on, but it like jumped a little, like it like unsheathed a little bit in your pants there. You felt like the skin move. That The funny thing about that is that's actually one of my. Most favorite coins. It's 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 extremely feelings. <laughs> Fun fact to know and share. Here's something creepy, and I don't know if they still do it, but to test a pedophile's pedophilicness, there's a test that's very similar to a lie detector test, except for they put a small band around the 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 man's penis, and then they show them pictures like slideshows. Yeah. And it can detect small increases of blood flow in the penis, and they've used this test to determine whether or not a pedophile still has pedophilic tendencies. I used to have to take that test all the time when I was young. My uncle <laughs> made me take it. He said he was just making sure I wasn't a pedophile. I, I was nine. Oh, I thought you were saying he 
He used you as the the rubber band. No, he he made me take the test. I was nine years old. It was in a basement. Oh, he just said that's... he just wanted to make sure that I wasn't a pedophile. Yeah, how'd you, how'd that turn out? It turns out, uh, I mean, I was a kid. Everything you know makes you. But uh, I mean, Uncle seemed pretty stoked. So I guess I passed the test. I don't I don't know. That's cool. That's cool. I get, yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, Pogs do the same thing that you know, picture of a naked boy would do to you back then. So. Yeah, I don't know where he got all those pictures because most of the pictures were kids from my neighborhood. <laughs> so that was <laughs> what a kid'll do for a 1943 Liberty Head V nickel these days. Never even got that goddamn nickel. <laughs> I think the the nickel was a lie. The cake was a lie. <laughs> um, Just the- the carrot. <laughs> so Charles was considered an average student by his teachers, a normal kid, you know, and nothing special. If this were the Simpsons, he would be like one of those vague students in the background that doesn't move or speak while Bart is carving swastikas into his desk or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Forgettable. This was this was Charles op. He was always in the background. He didn't stand out. Never made the front page of the news in his hometown when he was growing up. He was more like a table or a bookshelf. Or decorative dishes. Nice. Now, when he was younger, he got really into numismatics. Do you know what numismatics are? Up. Yes. Yeah. The process of of uh, you know, softening the impact of a car's wheels. Close, but not really. Numismatics mm. are the study and collection of coins, banknotes, as well as metals. Oh. So it's coin collecting, banknotes, you would think, and metals. Think, numismatics. Think. You were into numismatics. You didn't even know it. I don't like new coins as much as old ones, so it's probably more into old numismatics than the new new stuff. So Charles, he's uh, now probably, I don't know, 10, 11 years old. He, he's getting really into coins. His dad's fucking dead. He's always going to be dead for the rest of his life. His dad is dead. And he's just not, he's just forgettable and not making an impression on anybody and counting nickels and his fucking dad is still dead and is always dead anyways because of this interest his favorite hobby as a kid was coin collecting he got into coin collecting and that's fun most of his childhood honestly seems to be a blur of coins laundry mats being bland and having a dead father wow that's a also known as the big three the big three yep blur of coins laundry mats and having and and having a dead father, that's half the kids in my hometown. Aside from coins, just yeah. laundry mats, and having a dead dad. And that little photo booth that your uncle had, apparently. Yep, where he was testing to make sure that I wasn't a pedophile. Sacrifice he was willing to make. Yeah, good man. Good uncle man. Always looking out for us. I was looking out for the kids in the neighborhood. Anyways, Charles graduated from high school, from Jowl High School, in 1964 and bounced his happy ass right into the Navy. Uh, and, that, and pretty much went right to Vietnam. Now, it is possible he was drafted. The draft started, after all, in 64 and ended in 73. But I wasn't able to find that information out on whether or not he was drafted. But he did go to the Navy. He did go to Vietnam. Now, his time in the military seems to be of average uh, service and lost to time. He apparently did his time honorably, though, and got out. So uh, if he had a four-year stint, uh, he would have got out sometime around 68. So fun fact to know and share, speaking of your uncle, do you know what the currency in Vietnam is called? Blood? 
The Vietnamese dong. <laughs> Crazy. That's a word for dick. Yeah. It's weird. Also, it doesn't, uh, it's not very valuable. The, uh, the dong compared to the dollar is 0.000044 to the one Vietnamese dong. Now you're just perpetuating stereotypes. That's a lot of zeros. Not very valuable. You talk, you're talking about penis You're just length. pushing stereotypes, talking about Asian dongs and how they're... Insignificant how they are. small, significantly smaller they are compared to American. Yeah, you're just being a racist. Yeah. Yeah, trying not to be, but we're talking about dongs. It's hard not to. Inflation, yeah. you know. Those dongs, they inflate like crazy. And inflation is when it starts to move a little bit. Yeah, move unexpectedly and unwantedly. Good feeling. So Charles, whenever he was full grown, whenever he was at maximum inflation, whenever he was... <laughs> That's a good word for growing to adulthood. Just reaching maximum inflation. <laughs> when he reached maximum inflation as an adult man, he was a brute. Large man, six foot four, 260 pounds. Brute man, big enough to overpower the both of us up and have his way with our behinds if we were all locked in a small closet. It's uncomfortable. Who's standing next to him? When? In the closet. Both of us. Well, I'm standing behind him. He's standing behind you. Oh, no. Darn it. I'm going to have a big bruise on the middle of my back. It's the human centipede, only there ain't no mouths involved. So he's a large man. He's two, six foot four, 260 pounds. And in 1968, he gets out of the Navy and settles down in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is also in Lee County, just 45 minutes from his hometown of Jow. So he kind of gets out of his hometown, but not really. Still in the same county. Uh, but I would imagine he probably stayed close because his mother was still living there in jail. So now he's in Hobbs. Hobbs was a small town with a population of 30,000 in 1980. And that's almost double the population of my small hometown of Rockcastle County right now. Op. We actually just got a Dollar General, too, down there by the Hardys. So we're really hoping that brings in some new people and the population will really boom. Have you been to that Dollar General yet? It, it, they they really should change the name. I mean, to if you've them. been to one, you've been to them all. If you've been to a Dollar General in Arizona, you've been to a Dollar General in North Carolina. So he's living in Hobbs. Charles is living in Hobbs, small town. There he becomes a field technician for the Northern Natural Gas Company, which is now Enron. And it's there that he was responsible for maintaining the oil pump jacks. Now, if you're wondering, Kent, what the heck and what in the heck and fuck is an oil pump jack? That's one of those giant iron pelicans that you see out in the fields of Texas that constantly look like they're eating seeds uh, off the ground because of their up and down motion. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? They just go up and down and up and down. That's a pump jack, an oil pump jack. And uh, Charles was responsible when he was working for the Northern Natural Gas Company for maintaining those. So he's kind of following his dad's footsteps, his dad that is still very, very dead. So is the pump jack itself, is it, extracting at that location too or you yes. see them doing okay so there's they're connected to some reservoir somewhere where they're dumping but they're pump jacking yes also never go to pumpjack.com fun <laughs> fact to no one share don't go there you should go to pumpjackluna.com though that's a video we made in wisconsin it's also a venmo can contribute to his counseling on that page 
on January 23rd, 1970, so just two years after he gets out of the out of the Navy, Charles marries a drop-dead gorgeous woman by the name of Debbie Stank, and they will be together for the rest of his life anyway. She is 20 years old at the time that they get married, and he is 24, and this woman was beautiful. She looks just like a younger version of Jan from The Office. Did you ever watch The Office? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jan. Remember Jan? Nice. Yeah, she was she was very Michael nice Scott's looking. girlfriend, the the real hard hard ass girl. Yeah, that's yeah. who Debbie Stank looked like. Charles's wife. Oh wow, beautiful woman. Okay, a little bit on Debbie Stank because she does become an important part of this story. Charles's wife. She was born in 1950, and her father Bob Stank was also a coin collector. She also grew up in Jow, and she was pretty beautiful, like I said, and friendly. Uh, loved around town, kind of. How, how do you spell her last name? S T A N K E, and you are not going to be able to find a picture of her. I wasn't going to look for a picture. I was just thinking, I is that similar to the last name Stanky? Yes. Okay. Probably similar etymology, I would assume. I just says it like I sees it. Yeah. <laughs> not not really, because there's an e on the end and. He says it like yeah, but if I, if I I feel like if it was stank e, it would either it would be s t a n k e e or s t e n k e y. It would also be if that were the case. So all three of them are actually should be stanky phonetically speaking. So Debbie Stank was a pretty a, a beautiful friendly uh, young lady that was loved around her hometown. There, she was also the salutatorian of her graduating class. I don't know what that is. That means she was the second smartest. Everybody gets a fucking participation trophy in the fucking 60s, right? Uh, Salutatorian? It sounds like something we'd launch into space. Yeah, that's the one behind the valedictorian. Oh, wow. It's insulting. A little bit. Yeah, but yeah. it means you had the second highest GPA. Okay. All right. So, like I said, her father, Bob Stanky Stank, was also a coin collector. What I'm getting at, Op is not only did Charles come from humble coin beginnings, the laundromat, Debbie came from uppity, pretentious coin beginnings because her father was a bona fide coin collector. Could it be possible that Charles's coin envy and desire to own coins out of his league possibly fueled his murders later in the future? Was all of what is about to happen an act to prove that he was good enough to own a 1943 Lincoln Head copper penny? We'll never know. That was that was worthy of Discovery Channel like background music. That last piece you wrote there that that sounded very there's something about Pam esque. Very good. That, when that's the whenever I say that that's when in the doc the like cheesy ID crime channel the uh, mini documentaries the screen goes negative. Yeah, on you know, the face. <laughs> yeah, as a picture of, of of Debbie Stank, and then it's like until she didn't. And then the screen goes negative. Yeah. So Charles and Debbie, now Debbie Sinclair, thank God. Thank you. A last name we can both agree on. Debbie and Charles Sinclair, they rent a house at 800 South Lenham Street. It is now a desolate, dusty, bare, depressing, empty lot that is void of any vegetation, much like the rest of New Mexico and oddly reminiscent of where you live up. Yeah. Mm, it's true. I have a very... Arid landscape. It's very depressing there. Just flat and dry. And looks like the only, looks like where they would film like that Rango movie with Johnny Depp being a lizard. They, they did film uh, Stairway to Heaven here. So take that. 
Anyways, mid-1970, Charles's coin hobby turns into a business when he opens a coin shop with his wife using some of his own collection in Hobbs, New Mexico. He opens that shop up at 2400 North Grime Street. And that is now a shopping center chocked full of businesses that it appears nobody patrons aside from the Little Caesars where people can get a bland round cardboard pie inside a cardboard box for just five measly dollars. Yum. Or 20 quarters. Do you want me to convert that to Vietnamese dong really quick? How many Vietnamese dongs is that? That is, one second, dollar to Vietnamese dong. You said 20 quarters? 20 quarters. So that would be five, five bucks? Five, five bucks? Five. That's five dollars. How much a Little Caesars pizza is? So a Little Caesars pizza in Vietnam costs 114,375 dongs. It's a lot of dongs. It's a ton of dongs for a pizza. Not quite More sure. dongs than I saw when I was in college. Not quite sure I could debase myself that much. I've never saw that many dongs in my life. I never saw. The only person I've known that's seen that many dongs was an ex of mine. Oof. Zing. And she's never been to Vietnam. <laughs> uh, the community fun. loved the business that Charles opened. They, they loved this little coin shop. They loved Charles. They liked the business. Charles, by everybody there, was considered easygoing and nice to talk to, easy to get along with, just a nice guy. And on August 4th, 1971, their first child, Michael Allen, is born. So three years after Charles gets back from Vietnam, he's now married to Debbie. He's got a coin shop. He's working for Enron, what will become Enron. And uh, he now he's got a son. He's got a good life. Got a loving wife, a beautiful wife, a young boy, and a, and a business. And soon his business expands into high-value guns. And then he rebrands into a sportsman warehouse. And that place was called Shooter Supply, even though he's still selling coins. Um, so he's now he's selling guns. Valuable guns, too. And coins. That's what he specializes in. He's kind of like Jay-Z. I don't know if you remember when Jay-Z once set up, uh, quote, Got a thing for nickel-plated nines and pretty dimes. Mac 11, I squeeze like lemon limes. That was Jay-Z singing about his love for high-value guns and collector coins, I believe. I believe that's what he meant by pretty diamonds. Pretty dimes. I've got a thing for nickel-plated nines and pretty dimes. I bet I bet Jay Z owns like seven 1955 double die pennies. Those are worth eighteen hundred dollars a piece, huh? Oh, that was weird feeling I just had. You passed, you blasted me with that that coin fact, and like it was weird because my reflex was to give that coin fact to you, and yet you gave it to me. So it was like kind of like a uh, like a inverted climax of sorts. It was, felt weird. An inverted climax? Yeah, you know, like when you're climbing the rope in gym class? Kind of, that's just I what I thought that meant there. like the Shoot. other person. I was going to say every person I've ever slept with has had an inverted climax. It's <laughs> <laughs> when the other person gets off and you don't. <laughs> yes. Oh, it's not my fault I'm better at sex than everybody else. If you didn't get off, you must be really bad at sex. You um, should also never drive a train with that philosophy. 
You didn't get off. Too bad. It's on you. Too Must bad on you. Must be bad at sex. Um, 1974, Charles and Debbie's daughter, Pam, is born. Now, the whole family, Michael, young Michael Allen and Debbie and Charles and soon even Pam, they're all avid outdoorsmen, avid outdoorsmen and women. They love guns and hunting and shooting competitively. Uh, Charles had a lot of hunting buddies and law enforcement friends and and important places. And now we're going to switch gears a little bit because... Monday, January 27th, 1980, at the Bennington Auction Company and Tropical Fish Store in Everett, Washington, a policeman on duty walks past an open door when the business is supposedly closed, and he sees the doors open. He gets a little suspicious. He walks in, and inside of this company, he finds the body of 36-year-old David Sutton, and David Sutton has a single gunshot to the back of his head. Now, David Sutton was an antiques dealer. He had some uh, some antiques and coins. There was no sign of struggle, and it appeared that $80,000 worth of silver coins had been stolen. Ugh, terrible. No struggle? No struggle. Hmm. Meanwhile, back in New Mexico, Pam and Michael help at the family business. Uh, so Pam, uh, the daughter, and Michael, the, the brother, they're growing into, into young, healthy, young people, and they're helping with the family business. Now, business does seem to be booming from the outside and this sportsman warehouse shooter supply business seems to be booming, but guess what up? There's always two sides to the coin. Oh, <laughs> nice. <clears throat> nice polygamy there. It turns out the Sinclairs were in financial stress and they were absolutely horrible with money. They, they would spend it on trips, buy things that they didn't need fruit that they just didn't. They weren't good at saving money. And on March 6th, 1985, their business shooter supply goes down in a fire, and uh, to the surprise to the surprise of probably not you or the listeners now, because hindsight's twenty twenty, Charles was considered the suspect in the investigation for arson. Charles was injured in the fire, and Charles's explanation was that the day prior he had been cleaning and some solvent had spilled on the carpet, so he was just cleaning, and solvent spilled, and then he came in the next day with a carpet cleaner. And when he plugged it in and turned it on, it ignited the solvent in the carpet. But later, uh, we would find out that Charles had sold a fake 1870 S-seated Liberty dollar to the specter of death from Final Destination. And that's actually what had happened. That'll do it every time. I'm kidding. He he didn't actually sell a a fake 1870 S-seated Liberty dollar to the specter of death from Final Destination. But that was his excuse for how the fire started. It, it kind of like like the coin facts you're dropping are are like if if they were the solar system you know your your orbit really you're hot you're hot you're really close to the sun and they're really good. My wings are melting. Yeah, but they're good and they're bright and but there's little bits and pieces that are floating out there, like, like Pluto with little little facts about the 1870s seated Liberty dollar that you're not mentioning. But but I don't want to I don't want to. I don't want to upstate. I'm just really proud of you. I guess is what I'm saying. I'm really proud of you, you know, for your coin facts. So. Thanks, man. I told you there was a lot of work in this one. Yeah. So, like I said, Charles claims he had sp- he had cleaned some solvent on the carpet the day before and then came in with his cleaner and plugged it in and it started a fire like a death from Final Destination. But, and then he, he said that it started the fire and then he claimed he's tried to stay inside 
trying to get the fire under control at first, but eventually it overtook him and he had to run out through the back door. Now he was taken to the hospital and treated for smoke inhalation. And like I said, police began investigating him from arson, but no charges were ever filed. Now, after the fire in early April of 1985, Charles and Debbie do file bankruptcy and they default on their bank loan. It's interesting. I, w- I was curious when it went up in flames. You said that they're bad with money, right? Yes. Like it was. It's interesting that this wouldn't have been like seen as like an insurance scam or something like that. You know? Yeah. Well, here's something that I couldn't find because this is what's weird. So this they, they owned a shooter supply, right? Mm-hmm. Which is an, a sportsman warehouse, sportsman's warehouse. For whatever reason, none of the guns. Or any of the valuables were inside the business when it caught fire. Uh, see, to me, that kind of stinks. Right? Yeah. It seems like something's missing. The best that I could that I could come up with well, with why none of this stuff was in there is uh, Charles was talking about them doing a deep cleaning. So maybe that was his excuse for why he had taken everything out of there. Yeah, that seems like a lot of stuff to move. A lot of stuff. Like something's missing in the story. Kind of like when you were talking about the 1870. As seated Liberty Dollar, and you didn't mention this ninety percent silver. It seems like an important part of the story, kind of. But to this story, it it yeah. To this story, it absolutely is not. Yeah. On April eleventh, the bank then starts trying to reclaim all of the guns as collateral, and because of this, Charles and his family do what anybody would do in this situation. They take all the guns and go on the run on April twelfth, <laughs> the next day, and they run off to Montana. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. April 11th, the bank's like, hey, we understand you can't pay us what you owe, but you have, I don't know, $100,000 in weapons there. We're just going to take that as collateral. So, yeah, Charles loads all of that shit up into the family van, puts his kids in there, takes his wife, and they move to Montana. Now, they are only in Montana for a few months before Charles decides to move again. He ultimately chooses Washington as the state, but doesn't know exactly where in Washington that he wants to settle down. So he pulls out a map, slaps it on the hood of the vehicle, and lets a now 11-year-old Pam point to a place in Washington, wherever she wants. She points at Denning, Washington for no reason at all. This was the child equivalent of just flipping a coin like Joe D. Messina said in her song, Heads Carolina, Tales California. Remember that song, no, I've never heard that. Heads Carolina, tails California, somewhere greener, somewhere warmer, up in the mountains, down by the ocean, where it don't matter, long as we're going somewhere together. I've got a quarter up Heads Carolina, tails California, up. Ooh, ooh, move yeah. to Carolina with me, operator. Yeah, yeah. Now Ooh. I remember it. I remember it that was as Jody soon Messina. as he started singing. Yeah, I was. I remembered as soon as he said it. I was just seeing how long he'd sing. Yeah, it's a good song. Good song. Jody Messina hits. This is basically that version. He slaps this map on the hood of this car, says, Hey, little Pam, you little bitch. Point at a place in the Washington. I mean, he probably didn't say that, but point at a place yeah. in Washington. And then she she points at Denning. And mm-hmm. that's, he goes, Denning it is then, Pam. Whore. We're going to Denning. <laughs> Not quite sure why she'd he'd say that, but I, it probably lines up with the song you were singing somewhere. I'm guessing. 
And he probably didn't call his 11-year-old daughter a whore. Uh, she's actually very sweet. I've seen interviews with her. She's a, she's a sweetheart. Seems like <laughs> a good she, woman. Didn't deserve that at all, especially at 11 not. years old. No. <laughs> so she points at Denning. They move to Denning. That's where they go. Now, at one point during the transition from Montana to Washington, the family is crashing at a motel, at a motel or a hotel. One or the other. I don't know the difference. <laughs> but and, you do. But you do now. You do. Now the motel is the one where you can where it's got the catwalks for hookers, right? Yeah. Motel yeah. is drive up to the door. Hotel so they're at a motel. Is, okay. There you go. So they're moved they're on their move from Montana to Washington. They're staying at a motel. Charles and Debbie leave the two kids there in the motel alone by themselves for a minute. And the kids there, they're alone in the motel room when the phone rings. And the person calling the motel room was the manager needing something, probably some additional information, nothing serious. But when the kids answer, he asks for Mr. Weir, Weir spelled W-E-I-R, instead of Mr. Sinclair. The kids have never heard of a Mr. Weir, so they tell him they don't know who that is. You got the wrong room. There isn't a Mr. Weir in this room. Not long after those phone calls. What'd you say? That's weird. Yeah, I thought I thought that's what you said. I just wanted to make sure it was as bad as I thought. Yeah. A little later, so after the phone calls, there's a knock on the door. When they when the kids answer it, it's a police officer and the hotel manager. Now, the hotel manager had contacted the police because apparently there's somebody staying in a room that isn't that isn't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. The police officer asks the kids what their names are. They tell him that their last name is Sinclair. They don't know who Mr. Weir is. About this time. The, 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 so the kids are arguing with the police and the hotel manager about that time. Charles and Debbie Sinclair show back up and the cop asks him his name. He tells the cop it's Charles Sinclair. And then the manager and the cop ask him why the hotel room is in the last name of Weir. Charles tells the cop that he just wants privacy for his family and that he uses it because he's paranoid. Now, for whatever reason, it could be because this is the uh, because this is the uh, the the 80s. For whatever reason, the cop buys it. And leaves. After he leaves, yeah. though, Charles Sinclair leans down to his two kiddos and tells them their last name is no longer Sinclair. It is Weir. So they need oh. to get used to that. When the kids ask him why, he says that the police in New Mexico are looking for him, so they're changing their last name. This is the day, but well, he probably started doing it actually before this, but Charles Sinclair started calling himself Jimmy Charles Weir. And with going forward until the day he was captured, Call himself Jimmy Charles Weir. In reality, though, Hop, and this is an ultimate buddy fucking move, Jimmy Charles Weir was actually an old hunting friend of his from Jow, New Mexico. Oh, really? <laughs> what a buddy fucker. <laughs> Seriously. Wow. That's why anytime I, I download something weird from Pornhub under the name, I put The Operator. <laughs> So the family settles in Denning, Washington, where little Pam had pointed out, and they stay there for a few years. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Mishawaka, Indiana, op, on August 28th, 1985. So the family, they're living in Denning, Denning Washington, right? <laughs> on August 28th, 1985, it was a Wednesday in Mishawaka, Indiana, and the location is at Nunamaker's Coin Shop at 2516 Lincoln Way. Police are sent to that location at 2.45 p.m. in the afternoon after there were no answers to the phone there and the front door was discovered to be locked. Now, on arrival, 
the cops, they look through the windows there of Nunamaker's coin shop. And, uh, and in there, they can see 41-year-old store clerk and manager Thomas Rohr lying in a pool of his own blood on the floor behind the counter. They take a shotgun and bust out the front window with the buttstock. They go inside, and they find Rohr laying on his back, and he just has two gunshot wounds to the head. Between his feet lays an empty cash register tray. Now, Rohr had last been seen alive just a little over two hours early, earlier at 12.30 p.m., uh, he had been at Shirley's Homemade Potato Donut Shop and Delicatessen there. Uh, he, it was just a few hundred feet down the street, buying a sandwich on his lunch break. So if you're looking at uh, if you're looking at this this coin shop right to the left, it's like, I mean, three buildings down and across the street. There's this little this little donut shop that also sells sandwiches. Mm. He had been seen there just two hours earlier at okay. 1:45. So it's an hour before Thomas Roar was found dead. Customers start showing up at Nunamaker's coin shop to discover a locked door. But inside, they see a man sitting behind the counter that they had never seen before. And that man wouldn't let them in. When he, when they start filling on the door, he yells that he was doing inventory and told them to leave and come back in an hour. When these people were shown a photo of Thomas Rohr, who was murdered, they said he was not the man that had told them to leave. Thomas Rohr, by the way, was a retired police chief and was just working the job to kind of stay busy. The killer that day from Nunamaker's coin shop escaped with $55,000 in cash and gold coins. By the way, 36 years later, Nunamaker's coin shop is still there to this day. Who owns it now? Uh, uh, well, Thomas Rohr wasn't the owner. He was just an employee. Oh, I would imagine okay. some fellow by the name of Nunamaker. <laughs> You'd, you'd think. And I believe that was Joe Dirt's original last name because I remember a scene in that movie when that's why dad named you Joe Dirt. That's why dad named, dad named you Joe Buck instead of Nunamaker. Oh, yeah. The little girl says it. Is it a girl? Yeah, little girl. Yeah. Yeah, she, she speaks it. really fast. That's why I yeah. named you Joe Dirt, not Nunamaker. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. It'd be bad. It'd, it'd be really good if I could remember algebra as well as I remember stupid facts like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, me too. But, but I no. have failed algebra. <laughs> Wednesday, October 9th, 1985. We're going back to the uh, back to the Sinclair family, now known as the Weirs. Wednesday, October 9th, 1985. 39-year-old Jimmy Weir, so Charles Sinclair, is cited for shoplifting at Cost Cutter Foods Grocery Store at 4131 Meridian Street in Bellington, Washington. So this is the first like real run-in he has on a record with the law, right? Mm -hmm. When he gets caught shoplifting at Cost Cutter Foods Grocery Store. By the way, that grocery store there at 4131 Meridian Street in Billingham, Washington is now a Burlington store where you can find reasonably priced coats for all occasions despite the early untrue 1990s rumors that Burlington coats often had snakes in the pockets. (laughs) (laughs) Who believes that stuff? Uh, I don't know. That was a rumor that was started in the 90s. Don't get them Burlington coats. They got snakes in the pockets. What kind of snake stays in a pocket? That how, What kind Gardner of what snakes? Kind of, I guess. Super weird. Trouser snakes. Like all of them just stay in the pocket. You know, no, yep. none of them come out at all. That's why if you look them up on Wikipedia, they call them pocket snakes. Do they? Yeah, you got like lab, lap dogs. Mm-hmm. Certain dogs are lap dogs. It's pocket snakes. Who would have thought? That, that's what they would have been called. August 1986. So now it's August 1986. Soon-to-be retirees 
Robert and Dagmar Linton from Lodi, California. They're headed northwest towards Vancouver with hopes of seeing the World's Fair. Now, they're traveling in their pickup truck, and behind them, they're pulling a camper. They were in their 60s, and short trips like this wasn't out of the ordinary for them. They love traveling and camping and seeing the sights, just like any old couple up. Mm-hmm. They're, they're on the brink of retirement. They're enjoying their old age. They go. They love traveling with their camper and camping at these campgrounds and going to places. Just like, uh, just like uh, they're living the dream. So, Robert and Dagmar Linton were were like really good about calling their family back home multiple times a day throughout their trip to let them know that they're okay. But on August twenty second of nineteen eighty six, the call stop all of a sudden, and Robert and Dagmar Linton are declared missing. They had last been seen on on August twenty first at the Naco West Campground in Brennan, Washington. And on that day at the Naco West Campground, staff there find the Linton's camper trailer left behind, but their truck was gone. Inside that camper trailer, there was evidence of a fight and struggle. Dishes and silverware were strewn everywhere. Soon after Robert and Dagmar and Linton's disappearance, an unknown man started using their credit cards throughout um, Oregon and Washington, uh, the credit card activity was traced all over both those states. In one instance, after looking at cameras, a tall, bearded white dude who had a large bandage on his right hand used the card to buy a clarinet at a music store in Oregon. Very important to remember this large bandage on his right hand. So obviously in this struggle inside the trailer, he was injured somehow, probably enough. He had a large bandage on his right hand, and he purchased a clarinet at this music store using Robert and Delmar Linton's credit cards at this music store in Oregon. If you were at a music store, would, would clarinet be the thing that you would buy first? Uh, no, I'd probably go with like a harmonica. Yeah, yeah. Or I'd go with like an electric guitar. Maybe a piano. Something. I, honestly, clarinet would be the last thing I'd buy. Thing. Clarinets are kind of, I don't know, LGBT. Um. <laughs> What's funny about what you just said there is there's nothing wrong with what you just said and also everything wrong with what you just said. <laughs> That's amazing. That's impressive. That's a, it's hard to do. <laughs> Oh, trying to be more progressive with TCK. Yeah, you're doing good. Thank you. You Thank know, you. I, on that, I'll just say one thing. I I have heard from a handful of people, and I think this is true. I don't understand why why there's a Q in that acronym because that that is a slang term. You yeah, know what I mean? It's, well, it stands for queer, but that's just gay. Yeah, yeah, but there's a lot of people, especially even in that community, that are arguing that that's more of a slang term than a community-used term. It's just weird that they're kind of sticking to their guns on that one, and you know, maybe they feel like it's a battle of attrition if they lose a letter. You know, is it that, or is it uh, like reclaiming the word, the way the N word is? Like, I get that. When like we take this word back, we take the power, we take it, it's ours now. I understand that, if that's what's going on there. That makes yeah. sense. Okay, all right. I see what you said, and I agree with that. I could see them that being the case. Okay. My heart has changed. And if not, I mean, if that's what's going on, I respect that. That's cool. 
And you know what? If that's not what's going on, I respect it too. Just so that we're fully... I respect whatever is happening. I do too. Love of God, talk. please don't come after me. I respect it. <laughs> I respect all the things. Like, please. subscribe. Five to one star. Bop, bop, bop. I didn't mean it when I called that 11-year-old a whore. <laughs> so like usual, uh, the media fucks this up too because uh, somehow they get a scoop that the credit card's being used and they start reporting in the media despite the police not wanting them to. Obviously, the person using the credit card sees this on the news and stops using it immediately. And all this could have easily been probably ended way long before it ends up bodies start stacking. So yet another thing we have, uh, we can thank the media for news outlets. Even back then. On Wednesday, September 24th, 1986, which is one month after Robert and Delmar Linton disappear, their pickup truck is found abandoned at the Seattle Tacoma airport in the bed of the truck. It had a camper on it. They find blood splatter on the roof and three different types of blood. Now, two of those types of blood trace back to the Linton couple, Robert and Delmar, but the third one belongs to an unknown male. Robert and Dagmar Linton were never found and have not been found to this day. Wow, really? Really. Oof. So we're going back. We're going to boom, boom. Pff. We're shifting back to the Sinclairs, now the Weirs, right? Daughter Pam, Charles's daughter, would later say that she found it odd at the time that neither of her parents ever had jobs that she could recall after the, uh, after the sportsman warehouse burned down, shooter supply. After it burned down, they never had normal jobs ever again. But they always had money. They always had money. Mm. Now, our parents didn't do drugs. They weren't selling drugs. But they always had money up. She also found it odd that her father would sporadically go on business trips throughout the year and be gone for up to two weeks at a time, even though he didn't have a job. He was going on business trips. Now, in Kentucky, when daddy is going on business trips... It means you're never going to see him again, ever, <laughs> especially when he's a drug dealer or a farmer or a fry cook or he works at Long John Silver's. <laughs> Sometimes when he came home from these business trips, his appearance would be drastically different. It would be different. He, he, his beard would be shaved. His mustache would be shaved. His beard would be fully grown out. His hair would be cut short. His hair would be long. His hair would be dyed. That kind of shit up. I mean, he didn't do anything crazy like purple hair with a denim Green Day vest and a fought the patriarchy pins all over it. Uh, that The kind of appearance you would like expect from someone who was, I don't, I don't know, like trying to evade the police or something. Mm. Yeah. I was gonna and say, I'm just spitballing. Well, I've got one other theory, and that is those kinds of changes to the body also happen when you've been abducted by aliens on the reg. So you know, you, the they sh aliens shave your beard? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think yeah. this is lore. I don't think this is alien lore. No, they they will they will do that to you. I don't Every think time. that's true. They like it when you say hi to them. On Saturday, November first, nineteen eighty six. Now this robbery is the only one that I could that I could I couldn't find any information on it. I just know that it happened and apparently this man here that's murdered was just not important to the people of Vacaville, California, because on Saturday, November first, nineteen eighty six, fifty nine year old Reuben Lee Lucky, 
Williams. His nickname was Lucky. <laughs> he's was, he, was he? Was he? <laughs> he's, he's found murdered at his coin shop called Golden Hills Coin and Exchange in Vacaville, California. And he had a single gunshot wound to the head with a 38 caliber handgun. Now, the shop had been ransacked and thousands of dollars in coins were gone. It was reported that a tall man with a gap in his front tooth had recently become a regular there in the days prior. Tall man with a gap tooth. Yeah, I remember that. Tall man with a gap okay. tooth. Now, Added July 14th, 1987. So a few months later, it's a Tuesday night. Now the location is Cashet Coins in Spokane, Washington at East 2506 29th. At 9 p.m. on July 14th, 1987, 45-year-old Leo Cashet Jr., who is the owner of Cashet Coins, is found laying dead behind the counter by his wife, Maureen, and his daughter, Christine. Let me guess. Bullet wounds to the head? Single gunshot wound to the head. You got it. With a yes. 22 caliber uh, pistol. He had been shot sometime between 5 and 9 p.m., and the only reason the police knew that was because he had called his wife at 5 and told her he would be home for dinner soon. So the last time anybody spoke with him was at 5 o'clock, and he was found dead at 9. When okay. he didn't arrive home from for dinner, his wife and daughter began to worry, and then they went to the business and found him there. Okay. Showcases inside the store were broken, and coins were scattered around everywhere. Um, an undisclosed amount of money and coins were stolen. Uh, it, it was odd because Leo Cashette Jr. kept several we weapons within arm's reach of him at all times, including a shotgun and a thirty-eight caliber pistol. So, because of this, and because he had never made an attempt to, to take to use either of these, it was suspected that he was either surprised by whoever had done it, or it was somebody that he he was at least a little bit comfortable with. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. Also, I'm starting to. I'm starting. Um, are you going to get to the point of how ill-advised it would be to be stealing all the stuff that he's stealing? Because tracking that stuff, unless he's really good at fencing, it would be pretty easy. Are you going to talk about that? Talk about what now? You know, if if I were to go to the the local art museum here. And steal the Mona Lisa. Okay, but this is the 80s, and also he's not stealing the Mona Lisa. Yeah. All right. The police but also aren't releasing what inventory was stolen, because they probably don't even know. Okay. Yeah. All right. I guess it's... There's only one Mona Lisa. Yeah, small town coin shops, not not the Mona Lisa. Okay. Duly noted. You also need to keep in mind that he's hitting in other states, and then coming back to Washington. Yeah. Good points. Ten points, you. One night, after her father had gotten home from a trip, young Pam gets up late one night and finds her dad in the living room cleaning a bunch of old coins. He's sitting there, mm. hunkered over. It's like two in the morning, cleaning old coins. This guy's like a real-life version of that old horror movie, Leprechaun. No, you remember <laughs> that one? <laughs> yeah. Great movie. By the way, uh, there are four, way, far more traumatic things that Pam could have walked in on. She could have walked in on her dad cleaning her mother's colon. Or walked in on her dad with a leprechaun. But when she asked her father what he's doing, he says, don't worry about it. Just go back to bed. And she does so. Not very suspicious, really. I mean, you know, she gets to see him 
every you know twenty eight days in between beard growths. It's not like she she's really up yeah, on hair his, changes all of his routines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early March, nineteen eighty eight. So this is um, July. So this is you know. So, like, uh, almost uh, a little over a, a little under a year later, a stranger starts frequenting Lee's Coin Shop at fifty-eight fifteen Redbridge Road in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, he's driving a nineteen seventies faded blue four-door sedan and claims that he's a Vietnam veteran, which is technically true, with a farm in Butler, Missouri, and that he was. And he also says he was raised in Denver, Colorado. He lets the the store owner there at Lee's Coin Shop know that he's interested in possibly selling a large coin collection that he has. So, he he starts frequenting and the, and you'll notice this is a this is the MO. He doesn't just come in he, he'll he'll spend 3 days a, acquainting himself with the owner, with the staff, becoming comfortable, becoming a regular mm-hmm. uh, and, and making a friend. So on 6 p.m. on Saturday of March 12th, 1988, the owner of Lee's Coin Shop, 50-year 52-year-old Leroy Hoffman is found by one of his relatives dead in the back room with several twenty-two caliber gunshot wounds to the head. I would have shifted up my gun at this point. I would have variated which gun I'm... Yeah, he uses the thirty-eight once, but all the rest of them are, t- are the twenty-two caliber. Also, not the best killing gun. Uh, and you will later find out he, he also had a silencer on it. Not the best killing gun, but he also has a silencer on it, which makes okay. it even weaker. Yeah, but I guess close range, you know, that... With these the are all point blank. Yeah, twenty two with the silencer on it would sound like a cap gun, you know? Wouldn't sound yeah. like much. Now, 52-year-old Leroy Hoffman, he had been collecting coins since he was a child and had opened up the shop after retiring from the Air Force in the mid-1970s. His plans, unfortunately, this is kind of sad, was to sell the shop that winter and get out of the business so he could spend more time with his family. Ah, dang it. An undisclosed amount of money and coins was stolen, and that creepy little old stone building is still there to this day, by the way. And it is now Connie's Sheer Heaven Salon, where you can get a little taken off the top with scissors as opposed to a twenty-two caliber handgun. <laughs> 1989, we're going back to the, to the happy Sinclair, now we're family. After living in Washington for a little over four years, uh, his, his oldest child, Michael, graduates high school, and Charles once again decides to completely uproot his family and move again, so he gathers all them up and drags them off to Alaska. Of course. Of course he does. From Washington to Alaska. Pam is now 16 years old, and in between her freshman and sophomore year of high school, Michael Allen has just turned 19 years old. He moves the family to an extremely remote area on a 160-acre plot of land near Kinney Lake in Alaska, and that's 40 miles south of Valdez and 100 miles east of Anchorage. So very desolate, remote, lonely place uh, near Kinney Lake in Alaska on a 160-acre on a plot of land. They settle into this new, isolated, kind of bush people lifestyle, you know, kind of like castaways almost, Tom Hanks. Only on land that's not surrounded by water, but voluntarily. Bush people. I always bush think people. of Woodstock when I think of bush people. Because of, like, the pubic hair? Probably. I don't know why exactly my brain goes there, but yeah, yeah. Probably. 
Charles was still, though, although they lived in Alaska, he was still making his trips a few times a year. Neither Charles or Debbie still had jobs. It is now the spring of 1990, and Charles takes his longest trip yet. This trip will be three months he's gone. For three months, he's gone. It's a lot of beard growth. So during this trip, ironically, Op, while, while Charles has gone on this trip, on May 1st, 1990, at a coin shop called Legacy Rare Coins at 153 East 4370 South in Murray, Utah, a man going by the name of Jim Stockton comes strolling in and quickly makes friends with the staff there at Legacy Rare Coins. Now, Jim Stockton was a tall and friendly man who claimed to be from Texas and was wanting to get into coin collecting for investing. He also had a heavy Texas accent. I like to imagine that that I don't think it's a spoiler alert. This is Charles Sinclair. <laughs> it was Charles Sinclair op. Charles Sinclair is actually Jim Stockton. What? Mind blown. I'm sorry. I, I don't want to show my cards. <laughs> but Charles Sinclair is Jim Stockton. And I like how he's adding this accent. He's really getting into character. He probably tries on wigs at the motel room in the mirror. Hi, I'm 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 Jim Stockton from Texas. I'm look. He's just trying. He's, he does this with his fingers, and he's like, "I am a rooking for a coin." because it was the '80s or the '90s. Or, Tries on a bunch of different accents, lands on Texan, thinks that's the best. Because he, I'll bet you his accent was similar to you know that what was that big giant rooster's name on the cartoons? You know the one with the Texas Gary, <laughs> Gary the rooster. I don't know it's cartoon you're watching. I think. Was it big, Gary? The, was it big not? rooster? You don't remember big rooster cartoon? You talking about? Uh, Talking about Ricky Lake? <laughs> Foghorn Leghorn. Ah, that was my next guess. Yeah. Very close to Gary. And Ricky Lake. Whatever happened to her? I think she died. That's what I say when anybody asks me what happened to somebody. I was like, they died. They're dead. She did just keep getting smaller and smaller, kind of like... She uh, did. She eventually just went... Benjamin <laughs> Button. And... <laughs> Just twinkled away into a couple star bursts like, uh, you know, fairy dust. Bloop. Right before she completely vanished, she looked like a butthole. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, Charles Sinclair's Jim Stockton. He's Jim Stockton, uh, uh, that, op- operator. I- operator. I don't even. I didn't. Even, I didn't see that coming. Probably at the motel, he probably tried on blackface at one point. He was like, "This isn't going to age well. I don't want to do this." <laughs> Let's go back to Jim Stockton. <laughs> uh, the co-owner of Legacy Rare Coins, her, his name was Kelly Finnegan, usually spoke with Jim Stockton, and Jim Stockton comes into the shop every day for the next couple of days and hangs out for long periods of time. So he's one of these guys that's just irritating the staff. He's got one elbow on the counter, like, so what, you know, what, what kind of things you into, Kelly? And they, and they like have to entertain him, you know, but they, they don't think, they don't look at, look at him as a threat. And this seems to have been, 
um, uh, Sinclair's MO. Mm. Get comfortable, come in for a few days, come up with the story, have this character. Kelly Finnegan would later say, by the way, Kelly Finnegan is the only person, the only victim of, of Charles Sinclair that will survive an attack from him. Yeah, but Kelly Finnegan would later say, quote, can you do a Utah accent? Uh, um, yeah, you want me to okay. say her quote? <clears throat> uh, she said, yeah, well, it's a him. Kelly Finnegan is a him. Kelly. Okay. He came across as redneck. He said he was retired and living in the Salt Lake City area and wanted to sell some silver. He came in for three straight days and would just talk. He'd say things like, I wouldn't drive a Jap car if I was given one. Other than that, he seemed like a fairly nice guy. End quote. This guy's basically, yeah, I mean, he seemed all right. He's a little racist, but aren't we all? You know, <laughs> other than that. By the way, Jap cars, you can, if you keep oil in a Jap car, it will, it will outlive you. It's true. And that's a fact. Buy a Toyota, keep oil in it. You can pass that. Your, your, your great, 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 great grandson will be passing that down to his son. <laughs> just keep the oil, just keep oil in it. I'm going to start slipping the N word randomly in these, in these uh, quotes to see if I can get you to read them. It's going to be my new game that I. <laughs> and I and I will read them because You're I'm like just Ron quoting. Burgundy. You just say <laughs> whatever's on the screen, <laughs> and it should be okay because I'm just quoting somebody else. That's that should be all right. I think that's how it uh, works. I don't know. I want you to pull up at a busy intersection with your windows down and sing some Tupac. <laughs> yeah. See if your pasty ass can get away with that. <laughs> It can't. I already know. Seeing Hail Mary at an at a busy intersection in Compton. I'd like to see that. Operator. No. I ain't a player, but don't push me. Revenge is like the sweetest joy next to getting pussy. <laughs> Picture paragraphs unloaded, wise words being quoted. I don't even know a rap song. Oh, Friday evening, May 4th, 1990. Friday evening, May 4th, 1990. Close to closing time at Legacy Rare Coins. Our uh, Jim Stockton here, spoiler alert, Charles Sinclair, pulls up in a blue Chevy S10 and comes strolling in rocking a pair of blue jeans, a white shirt with a button-up work shirt over it, and some brown boots. He starts bullshitting and browsing the display cases like usual, just kind of being a, a nuisance hanging around there at Legacy Rare Coins. Kelly begins closing out the register, covering the valuables, shutting the store down. He comes in right at closing time, and uh, he's just kind of chit-chatting there. With uh, with Jim Stockton as he's closing the store down, but when Kelly Finnegan bends down, he unlocks the large safe behind the counter, and he hears behind him. So he's he's bent down at this safe. Un- he unlocks it. It cracks open, and the second it cracks open, he hears Jim Stockton mutter under his breath behind him, "Quote, you dumb bastard." Unquote to himself. He was saying that to himself. He was saying it to himself. Yeah, just kind of like, you dumb bastard. <laughs> just to himself. <laughs> the second the lock, the second the front of that safe kind of squeaked open, Kelly Fin- or Jim Stockton muttered to himself, you dumb bastard. <laughs> Kelly Finnegan hears this and turns around and says, what? But the second he sees, he turns around and faces Jim Stockton. Now he's still on his knee, on one knee in front of this safe. 
Jim Stockton fires a single round at point-blank range from a twenty-two caliber pistol with a silencer attached that strikes Kelly Finnegan in the top of the forehead at his hairline and leaves gunpowder pu- gun marks on his shiny-ass forehead like a fucking Looney Tunes character. <laughs> <laughs> the round hits, him, hits Kelly Finnegan in his hairline, travels between his scalp and skull, and exit out the back of his head without ever even breaking bone. What? Yeah. That's amazing. That's luck. That's luck right there. Imagine the luck. Yeah, yeah. Imagine trying to fire around at Jada Pinkett Smith's hairline. He'd be aiming all over the place. You would. Might even hit her boyfriend. Uh, So the second the round hits... The second the round hits Kelly Finnegan's head, he falls down. Obviously, the repercussion alone is going to knock you down. But he isn't dead. As a matter of fact, he isn't even unconscious. Uh, he just took the luckiest bullet on the face of the earth. Um, technically, he wouldn't even have to go to the hospital for this because it never even broke bone. It would be a nasty flesh wound. But he does begin to play dead, and he just lays there with his eyes closed. Now, Jim Stockton thinks Kelly's dead. Jim Stockton then goes outside to his truck comes back in with a duffel bag, takes a tablecloth off one of the display bo- uh, the display cases, puts it over Kelly's face and body. So now Kelly Finnegan is laying, playing dead underneath this cloth. Uh, and then he hears Kelly, uh, Jim, Jim Stockton go over, take the phone off of the phone, off of the hook. Uh, and, and then Jim Stockton steps over top of Kelly several times while he's loading rare coins from the safe into the duffel bag, as well as two watches. He takes one of those watches from the display case, and he picks one from the from Kelly's own pocket. All in all, he makes it out with $60,000 worth of stuff in the duffel bag. Wow. Also, what luck. Not only do you take a bullet and you got a fake playing dead, but the guy covers you with the blanket so you don't have to, like, you know, hold your breath quite as much. You could actually kind of open your eyes and, you know, you're still dead, but he covered you. So, yeah, that guy is the luckiest guy on earth. Yeah, on earth. He said later uh, that I remember reading a quote that the only benefit that I had in the situation was the fact that I knew I was alive and Jim Stockton didn't. Yeah. You now, do. eventually, uh, Jim Stockton leaves. Uh, the second he leaves, Kelly Finnegan hops up, hits the emergency panic alarm in the store, and then runs next door to the Domino's Pizza for help. By the way, that Domino's is still there to this day, and it's smack dab in the middle of a bunch of Asian businesses. It's so weird looking at this. It's like a little shopping center. Uh, it's like. Legacy Rare Coins itself, by the way, is now a Korean and Japanese grocery store. So that's pretty neat. But it's like in this, it's like all kinds of Asian cuisine and Asian grocery stores. And they're right in the middle of it all. This Domino's pizza is still there to this day. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Domino's, I see Op getting those autistic hands at just the mention of it. (laughs) His fingers are sweating and he's holding them up and doing this I am Sam shit. Looking like Leonardo DiCaprio and what's eating Gilbert Grape over there, just at the mention of Domino's Pizza, and that's a story for another time. But I like to yeah, think it's more like Leonardo DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street hands, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so uh, 
at the Domino's, Kelly Finnegan gets the employees there to call the police. The police do show up and begin an investigation. Uh, they make a sketch of Jim Stockton, but nobody in the area knows who he is, and all leads find a dead end. Kelly Finnegan survives this uh, this encounter with Jim Stockton, a.k.a. Jimmy Weir, also a.k.a. Charles Sinclair. And he has no permanent damage, none whatsoever. It was essentially just a flesh wound. That's amazing. 4.09 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon, July 31st. So this is a few months later. 1990, a customer walks into a coin shop in Billings, Montana at 924 Grand Avenue called Treasure State Silver and Gold. Inside, once he gets inside, he discovers a 47-year-old employee by the name of Catherine Neustrom dead on the floor and the owner, 60-year-old Charles Sparbo, near death, sitting upright in a chair. Um, they both had one gunshot wound to the head, like you probably already guessed, with a twenty-two caliber handgun. So uh, Catherine's already dead on the floor, and 60-year-old Charles Sparbo, Sparbo who was the owner of uh, Treasure State Silver and Gold there, has also had a also has a gunshot wound to the head, but he's sitting kind of leaning upright uh, in a chair. That customer immediately calls the police. Uh, has this made it down the road at all? Like coin shops are sort of you know a network community. So here's the thing: are you are you are you asking about police presence? Is there yeah, like police uh, presence or like somebody's calling the next coin shop? You know, like. You know, so I can make a whole area? other podcast. You could actually make a podcast series about the in, the investigation in this. Really? I am going to touch on it very. I'm going to glaze over how he got caught uh, because most of it is fairly uninteresting. But mm. there is a lot to how he got caught, and just talking in the crimes here alone, as you as you see, we're already uh, probably over two hours. How far we're we're coming up on two hours? Yeah. Um, there could be a whole other series of podcasts just on the police work involved in catching this guy. Really? So, yes, there is a buzz. There is a buzz going on behind the scenes, uh, and people and, and the police are picking up on this, this kind of trend here. Yes. Okay. All right. That's encouraging. Like I said, both of these employees have one gunshot wound to the hand or to the head. $54,000 in merchandise was gone from the display cases, and that, most of that was in rare coins. Charles Sparbo does die three hours later at the hospital at 7 p.m. from his uh, gunshot wound to the head. Other patrons of the store come forward and said that they had stopped in the store there. So they had other customers had stopped in the store there, uh, Treasure State Silver and Gold, at around 3.30 that afternoon, and a tall man with a gap in his front teeth had told them that the store was closed and that they needed to leave. During the investigation, though, <laughs> Charles' son, Jim Sparbo, so the victim the victim that had been killed, his son, Jim Sparbo, reveals that a tall man with a gap in his top front teeth and a large scar on his right hand. So remember the scar. If you remember whenever with the, uh, with the uh, abduction of the Linton couple, Several years earlier, he the had scar. a large bandage. He had been injured. Whoever had done that had been injured. Mm. Uh, and Jim Sparbo remembers that there was a very distinct, large, fresh scar on the right hand of of this man, and also the bandage on the his the gap in his teeth too. So that would have tipped him off. Yes, two clues there. 
Yeah, so the son of the victim, Jim Sparbo, reveals that there was a tall man with a gap in his front teeth and a large scar on his right hand. And that man had recently started coming in regularly over the last couple days. And that man was driving a silver Pontiac car with fender skirts. Jim also told police that he that the man had claimed he was a farmer from the nearby town of Laurel and that he was hoping he would be able to invest $130,000 into gold after selling his farm. Um, Jim Sparbo also said that he, he was immediately kind of suspicious of this story, though, because the man's hands were soft and bitchy and not the <laughs> like grizzled, leathery sandpaper hands of a farm boy. Yeah. Oh, by the way, um, Treasure State Silver and Gold there at 924 Grand Avenue is now a place where you can get it is it's now a parking lot uh the building itself has been destroyed and it is now the parking lot of an artisanal pizza joint now so that's that's very hipster mm very gentrified the police put a bolo out for a tall man with a front tooth gap and a large scar on his right hand and then they start connecting the man to other coin shop murders and robberies in previous years in other states. And this is where I'm going to kind of get into the police, try to break down the police presence here up. They, they, they get their big break. Like I said, they're aware they're seeing these kind of things happening. And, and keep in mind, it's happening across other states, but, but they're picking up on it and they do get a break. When one coin shop owner sees a composite sketch of the suspect and lets the police know that he knows the man in the picture, and that man's name is Jimmy Charles Weir. Now, the police do a background check into Weir's background info, and they do discover that a man by the name of Jimmy Charles Weir had recently rented a uh, a silver Pontiac car with fender skirts from Enterprise hmm. Rent-A-Car. And during that check, they discovered that he also had three rented storage units in Sumas, Washington, currently. So he currently had some storage sheds in Sumas, Washington. They uh, they got a warrant for those sheds in Sumas, Washington. And inside, they find in those sheds the clarinet that had been bought with the elderly couple's credit cards. Uh, but And that's the that's the weirdest thing. Check this out. Also inside, so that automatically ties... Uh, Jimmy Charles Weir to the Linton couple, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Inside, they also find C4 Claymore landmines. Jeez. Maps of uh, the Western United States. Equipment needed to make fake IDs. Evidence that linked him to the murder of Lucky Williams. A massive variety of valuable coins. 13 handguns and 37 rifles and shotguns. They find a girl's diary and inside that girl's diary, she often complains about her father being gone most of the time. They find several torn yellow pages from phone books listing coin dealers. They find a temporary driver's license issued to Jimmy Weir. After these storage units are raided, they finally turn to the FBI. And a long, exhausting, kind of boring search discovers that Jimmy Charles Weir is not a murderer. But the real Jimmy Charles Weir does know Charles Sinclair. And that Charles Sinclair sounds a lot like the perpetrator of all these crimes. So all of their search leads them to the Jimmy Charles Weir that lives back in Jail, New Mexico, who was friends with Charles Sinclair. Ah, uh, uh. Yeah, almost worked. Almost a good plan. 
And I, I mean, if I was Jimmy Charles Weir in this situation, at first I'd be like, I don't want to throw my friend under the bus. And then I'd think about it for like a split second. I'd be like, fuck this guy. Yeah, I'd be like, can I come along? You know, He's doing all these murders under the name Kent Chungus? Duh. Yeah. That makes me so mad because that's not even my real name. I'd start a GoFundMe to, like, you know, regain my name and credibility or something. You know, something monetary, and you know, I'd try to make hay with that while the sun shone. Well, Jimmy Charles Weir is a good man that didn't have any run-ins with the law. Uh, he, had, he was just a hard worker. He owned a store. Uh, he was a pillar of his community, and he's like, "Listen, I, I can, I can like back up all of my claims and give you dates of where I was at there and all these murders and all this horrible shit." But I'll tell you one thing: who you're describing sounds a whole lot like a fella that disappeared from here by the name of Charles Sinclair. And this is the first time that Charles Sinclair's name comes into the picture, and this is where his house of lies begins to crumble hmm. on August second, nineteen ninety. After his three-month reign of terror across the west coast of the United States, Charles decides it's time to return home from his business trip, one of many business trips. He had been gone three months at this point. And it is at the airport in Anchorage, Alaska, that Debbie, his loving and, and loving wife, that, by the way, is completely aware of all the crimes that he's committing. Debbie is waiting there to pick him up at the Anchorage airport, and and she is she is waiting there. And I want to set the scene here up, okay? Mm. I want to set the scene. Now, although their family vehicle that they use there in Anchorage, Alaska is never mentioned, I do imagine that it's like a late 80s Ford Bronco. That's what I picture because it's snowy. They got to have something with four-wheel drive. Yeah. Right? It's a Ford Bronco. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a Ford Bronco. And and Debbie, <laughs> she's standing there at the airport. She's got one foot on the ground and, and one on the running boards of the Bronco. And, and she's smoking a marble red while her puffy aquanet fused hair just kind of exists there in the wind and it doesn't flow at all whatsoever because of all of the aquanet (laughs) right and and her denim jacket the bottoms of it are blowing in the wind a little bit though and they're opening up just a little bit they're opening up just a little bit and they're exposing her mickey mouse shirt that's underneath her denim jacket it's 1990 (laughs) her tone legs Her beautiful toned legs, they're hidden by stretchy denim baggy pants that have the bands at the ankles. And (laughs) and from the sound system of the Ford Bronco, Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You is blaring from the sound system. And Charles (laughs) comes strolling out of the airport and he's got a pair of sunglasses on and he's wearing blue jeans too. And And they're way too goddamn tight. His blue, his blue jeans are way too tight, and his member is basically being held hostage by his testicles, who have it in a figure four <laughs> headlock due to the pressure from all the denim, from all the denim. And he's also wearing denim, and he walks down the denim sidewalk and across the denim road, and and they embrace <laughs> in a hug, and above them, denim clouds cover the denim sky. <laughs> it's Alaska, so it begins to snow as they hold each other, and he drops his denim bag on the ground full of stolen coins, and little denim snowflakes land on it. The <laughs> hug turns into an intense kiss, and Debbie's back hits hard against the body of that denim bronco. Everything in 1990 is denim. Denim and Aquanet. Life is good. Life is denim. Denim, Aquanet, and Guns and Roses. That's beautiful. I could smell that scene. I could just smell it. And not a pocket worth using on any of that denim stuff. 
uh, everything. Oh, that was beautiful. And 1990 was Denim, Aquanet, and Guns N' Roses. That's all right. Welcome to the jungle. Maybe that didn't happen. Maybe none of that happened. I'm, I, I mean, that was just me using my imagination. But we do know that Debbie picks Charles up at the airport. Well, I like to think that your vision of that day was accurate. Also, the faint smell of aqua de joe on the air. Yes. Yes. I'll tell you what, and this next part I didn't make up. The two of them on their way home up do stop at various pawn shops and whatnot. And on the way home, they sell over $15,000 in gold before calling it a knot. Wow. So she's totally complicit. Like She is 150 million percent complicit. Huh. Yes. Makes you wonder why the cops didn't just start there. Pam would later say that when her father, Charles Sinclair, returned home from that long trip, the three-month trip, he was in a really good mood following that trip. He had high spirits. He was happy. He's spending time with his family. He was just in the best of moods. So that's, that's fun. It is now the evening of August 15th, 1990. And on this evening, they're all there at their house in, in Alaska. The whole family is. Charles not on a trip right now. He's not out murdering and pillaging. That evening, a man, a mysterious man, comes walking up the driveway. Ask, and whenever uh, Pam answers the door, the man asks about some property that might be for sale there. And this is very strange. Out in, out in the isolated like kind of country of Alaska, that and this man just randomly asked about some property. First off, there wasn't any property nearby for sale. But what Pam did notice is that Charles, whenever he came to the door and started speaking with the man, Pam said that her normally jolly, loud, friendly father began to began to speak to this man completely differently than he would anybody else. He was immediately kind of quiet, submissive, uh, concerned, and he only answered with short yes and no whispers. Hmm. The next morning, August 16th, 1990, Pam is laying there in bed and asleep when she is violently kind of shaken awake by her father. When she jolts awake, her father kind of leans down and he tells her that he loves her and that he wants her to know that. And he, he wants her to verbally acknowledge that she is aware that he loves her. She thought this was weird. This was weird behavior. And I would imagine so in the backwoods of Alaska, if you're being shaken awake by your father, that usually means you're about to get diddled. Now, <laughs> if daddy shakes you awake in the early hours of the morning and starts reassuring you that he loves you, well, you're probably about to have yourself a traumatic experience. <laughs> Don't think I should laugh at that. <laughs> Pam is shaken awake by her father, like I said. And by the way, he never diddled Pam. She thinks it's weird. You know, hey, uh, so she knows something's up. She knows something's weird. Something's off about this. Pam does get up. She goes to breakfast uh, with her mom and dad. They're both at the breakfast table. That She says that morning went relatively normal. But at around 11 a.m., the phone rings and Charles answers it. He speaks calmly and quietly into the phone for just a minute and then hangs it up and says he has to go. Right now, he has to go. He grabs his coat and leaves out the front door, and that is the last time that the Sinclair family will ever see Charles in person ever again. It's like a movie script, just yes, drama. That same day, Charles Sinclair's shitty past 
comes back and cornholes him when the authorities swamp him near his home there in Kenny Lake in Alaska, and he is finally captured and arrested, and his now uh, five-year murder spree, it, it comes to an end. In custody, he keeps insisting that his name is Jimmy Weir and not Charles Sinclair, maybe not even to try to, he's been using this name so long now, he might actually believe it himself, but eventually he's like, oh yeah, my name is Charles Sinclair, and he is charged with the murders of Charles Sparvo and Catherine Newstrom, as well as the attempted murder of Kelly Finnegan. Uh, on his person, when he's arrested, they find the pocket watch on him that links him to the attempted murder in Utah of Kelly Finnegan. Yep. Um, as far as Debbie goes, she was extradited back to New Mexico to face embezzlement charges from the hunting store that they had had there that had burned down. Turns out that for how, God knows how long, they had been just pocketing the funds for hunting licenses and not reporting them to the state. Over $30,000 they made in hunting licenses that hadn't been reported to the state. Out of all the things, that's what she's uh, getting stuck with? Yes. Wow. Yeah, and, the, and you know how they found that? Uh, whenever they, it turns out this, this is an old charge. Whenever the store had burned down, they, the only thing that didn't burn down was the safe. And whenever the police got into the safe, they found all of the paperwork that led them. They had kept paperwork of their crime activity uh, in the. <laughs> wow. It's ironic seeing as how they broke in and stole a bunch of valuables and that they're like, no, our stuff should be safe in this safe. Who also keeps track? Like, okay, think about that. Who for keeps a, a paper trail of their crimes? Yeah, is there anything? I've, I'm always astonished by that. Like, you know, you'll read in the media or something, or like, you know, uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. And I'm like, how is it still alive? Like, how has it not been melted down or deleted? Or, or so we got access to all of these reports and, you know, WikiLeaks stuff. I'm like, how does that, who's keeping all this incriminating evidence around? I guess at the same point, that it's incriminating. It's also probably blackmail, though. So, I don't know. The world's weird. It is. You know why the world's weird up? Why? Because on October 30th, 1990, <laughs> just a little over two months after being arrested, Charles Sinclair has a heart <laughs> attack at 5.43 a.m. in his cell in Anchorage, Alaska, and fucks off at a young age, just like his dad did. He was 43 years old. Wow. Just doesn't even have to suffer. Wow. He, he, he murdered. I haven't even added up how many people he murdered. We're definitely over 10. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that he was also suspected of some other murders and rapes, but they had no other evidence to support it. So it's not worth mentioning because it maybe wasn't even him. I will say that with Charles dead... Money collectors all over the West Coast could finally breathe a sigh of relief up because, as Dwight Eisenhower put it, peace and justice are two sides of the same coin. Look at you. Le dropping the last word on this episode is coin. That's pretty good. That's not the last word of this episode. Oh, uh, shoot. On November, in November of 1990, the embezzlement charges against Debbie Sinclair are dropped and Debbie Sinclair fades off into obscurity. Uh, until today, we don't know where Debbie Sinclair is uh, as far uh, uh, today. She's probably not going by the same name. No, I would imagine she changed her name. I know that Pam Sinclair uh, did change her name. She was recently in a little mini documentary thing 
um, where she talks a little bit. I got some of the information for this episode. Not much. It wasn't didn't have a lot of information in it. Um, but she's also prefers to stay kind of hidden. Pam does, and Michael is completely non-existent uh, on social media, and and so we don't know where Michael is now. I do want to say uh, one other thing kind of before we close this out. Now, I know I'm going to get at least one email or message from somebody screaming about the 1989 rape and murder of a young lady by the name of Mandy Stavick. Uh, They're going to say, I forgot about it. No, I didn't. Um, Mandy Stavick is a kind of commonly reported true crime event. So it was a rape and murder. There was very light circumstantial evidence that Sinclair may have been involved with the rape and murder of Mandy Stavick. Uh, but in 2019, that case was solved and a man by the name of Timothy Bass confessed to doing it. Turns out uh, she was raped and murdered by a guy from her hometown who was obsessing over her. Charles Sinclair had nothing to do with that one. Well, look at you going deep, digging deep, swatting down the misinformation. Yes. And uh, with that being said, that's it. I'll- that's all of it. That's the whole shebang. That is the coin shop killer, Charles Sinclair. Don't forget the break and review and all that horse shit. The links for Jason Vukovic are in the show notes. And aside from that, we're out. I'll leave everybody with this. Time is the coin of life. Only you can determine how it will be spent. And that was Carl Sandberg. Wow. Last word again in this episode's coin. Good job. That was really good. Good job, everybody that helped on that one. I can't even say it was... Yeah, this was a team episode. That's great. That's great. I should do that sometime. I should have team episode of 911 and just have like 12 people on the episode with me talking. That'd be noisy. Yeah, that would be fun. Just everybody yeah. talking over each other. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way. Won't. Probably won't yeah. do that. <laughs> no. Well, um, but that's all I got up. Yeah. What What's next in the hopper? Do you got anything you want to reveal to me? Nope. No. Yeah. Well, you got till tomorrow. Contractually obligated. Just wanted to remind you of that before we leave here. Okay. I'm gonna so- go and kill myself. <laughs> all right. Well, have fun with that. I'll call you tomorrow. Uh, instead of calling me tomorrow, why don't you flip a coin? Heads, you don't call me tomorrow. Tells, you don't call me tomorrow. Deal. Let's do it. I'm into gambling. I'm in. All right. I love you. Ah, uh, what? Huh? What? What? What?